This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land. And this is the Full Story Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. No campaigners in the Voice referendum have been involved in a series of controversies that spread dubious or downright false information to voters. Marcia Langton, an architect of The Voice, in the spotlight for these comments. Every time the No case raises one of their arguments, if you start pulling it apart, you get down to base racism. I'm sorry to say it. And in calling some No campaign arguments racist, Professor Marcia Langton has in turn been accused of being racist herself. I don't believe that most Australians are racist, and I'm certainly not a racist, but what I was saying was that the claims made by the No campaign are based in racism and stupidity. These tactics appear to be working, with the No campaign now leading in every Australian state. Today, I'm speaking with Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisher about whether these divisive politics are here to stay. It's Friday, the 15th of September. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning, Lenore. Good morning. Good morning, Mike. Hi, Jane. So, Lenore, we're about a month out from the voice referendum. What have we learned about the current strategy of the No campaign this week? Um, quite a lot, actually. We've talked before about how the No campaign has seemed to be sort of increasingly emboldened in tapping into racial resentment and fear in its messaging. But this week, the tactics were brought like right out into the open. The former Fairfax Papers, so the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, had a story based on an online training session for phone bank volunteers for the No Camp. And these were people who were going to ring around and specifically target soft voters. And they were told explicitly not to introduce themselves as calling from the No Camp, but rather from the lobbying organisation, because that might turn people off. They were told their job was to introduce fear and doubt into the minds of the people. They were told to say that they were concerned citizens who'd heard that the voice would push for financial compensation for Aboriginal people. They were told to say, I've also heard that some of the people who helped design the voice proposal are campaigning to abolish Australia Day and want to use the voice to push for compensation and reparations through a treaty. All of these things raised a few questions in my mind and made me wonder if there was more to it all than meets the eye. So very explicitly going for doubt and fear. Their scripts advise them to say that The Voice is a platform for radical activists to attack our values and institutions and claim without evidence that the advisory body would mean separate laws, separate economies and separate leaders. Now, the thing is, 
Some of that is technically true. The last line's complete baloney. The idea that radical activists will attack our values and institutions is a clear us and them messaging from the people that are meant to be about, you know, unity. But Mm. some Yes campaigners have said they think Australia Day should change. And some of them do support a treaty. You know, it's right there in the Voice Treaty Truth slogan. And treaties might some point in the future start a conversation about compensation or reparations. But changing the Australia Day, for instance, would be up to the premiers. Any treaty would be a decade down the track. This is conflating things that are far away from the thing that is actually on the table right now for people to make a decision on and using those things that are far away and the uncertainty around them to really sow doubt and fear. And pulling that back to the very simple proposition on the table is proving incredibly difficult. And this doubt and fear campaign is working. It's undoubtedly working. And I think this week we saw it right out in the open and saw how effectively it is working. Mm. We've seen a succession of arguments put forward by what you might loosely call the no camp, not necessarily from the official organisations campaigning for no, but including from some politicians who are on the no side. There's been this sort of growing chorus of stories that are really about things that are not to do with the voice, if you (laughs) can put it that way, that are not going to the central issue that what the campaign should be about, which is, do you agree with this advisory body that's been proposed or not? People have been receiving text messages, apparently from Jacinta Price, the Liberal, who has been very prominent in the No campaign, asking them to register for a postal vote. The link on the site or in these text messages took them to a site which is not the Australian Electoral Commission but the Liberal Party and that is harvesting people's data for the Liberal Party and, on the other hand, includes their messages about the voice being, quotes, risky and divisive and so on, all that whatever whatever messaging they're putting on. Then, <laughs> I mean, we could go on. There have been, been a lot of other comments that have really gone beyond the pale from people who have been associated with the No campaign as well. So, for example, there were some quite remarkably offensive comments by Gary Johns at the CPAC conference a few weeks ago where he referred to Indigenous people living in a stupor and saying how they needed to learn English. And Gary Johns is not just anyone. He's the president of Recognise a Better Way, one of the no-campaigning organisations, which was founded by Warren Mundine, which, to be fair, one person who's part of the no-campaign has dissociated themselves from, Karen Little, in a podcast for The Guardian, but many others have not, even when they've been invited to. And so... Whether that's a deliberate tactic or not, it is really unconscionable to let this stuff go without explicitly dissociating yourself from it because those views spread and are picked up by people in the community who it's kind of, it's giving them permission to express things that they may already be thinking themselves and it's developing a really toxic, febrile atmosphere that is extremely damaging to Indigenous people and is being successful in driving the no vote, according to all the polls, and is really bad news for Australian democracy more broadly, I would say. And at the same time, somehow creates this loop where the no campaign sows doubt and fear and ferments, you know, resentment and division, and then says, oh, look, the voice is divisive and we're the people that can unify the country. I mean, it is 
Yeah, it is astounding, but in an era of sort of very simplistic messaging, it's really working. Mm, the divisiveness one is is pretty rich. <laughs> I mean, Peter Dutton decided that the coalition would oppose the voice, which obviously is a reasonable decision for them to make if that's what they think. But when one side supports the voice and the other side opposes the voice, that is by definition divisive. <laughs> he can't claim that he's not being divisive by doing that. Yeah, and we saw that sort of divisive comments leading to further divisiveness sort of play out in the no campaigns accusations this week that were levelled at prominent yes proponent Professor Marcia Langton. Can you remind us what happened there, Lenore? Marcia Langton is a very prominent academic, one of the architects of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. She's been appearing all around the country making the yes case. And she was referring to this idea that the no case is stoking racial resentment in response to a question at one of these events from someone who seemed to be thinking about no. What she actually said was, you know, she talked about some of the things that they've been saying and said, look, they're basically saying Aborigines are bludgers or Aborigines steal everything. And then she said, um, do you see my point? Every time the no case raises one of their arguments, if you start pulling it apart, you get down to base racism. I'm sorry to say it, but that's where it lands or just sheer stupidity. Now, that comment from her was reported accurately in the Bunbury Herald, which is where she said it, and then inaccurately in the Australian, the national newspaper, which ran a story headlined, Langton Brands, No Voters, Racist, Stupid. Now, that headline was changed, but by then the original headline and the import of it had taken hold. It became a social media post put out by the No campaign and by the leader of the opposition and by many people in the coalition asserting that she was saying that everybody who votes no is racist and stupid, not that she was saying some of the arguments made by the No campaign when you boil them down are racist. She then tried to correct the record in a series of interviews. But basically by then, the social media train had left the station, the commentary train had left the station. And astonishingly, I thought the Australian, who had sort of propagated the original incorrect interpretation of what she said, basically said Marcia Langton had only herself to blame. I think it's quite incredible. I mean, I think it's not really even an arguable proposition that the no campaign is appealing to racial resentment. I mean, that is what they're doing. But apparently an Indigenous leader can't point that out without being misinterpreted and without being it being purported that she's saying that all no voters are racist. I think the way that her comments are being put around is really damaging for the Yes campaign because the No campaign has been pretty successful. And if you were someone influenced by what the No campaign has been saying, and then you really thought that a prominent yes campaigner was saying you're a stupid racist, it would be galling to you. So again, the way that the no campaign is upturning the truth is really working for them. But it really shouldn't have in that sense because she wasn't saying what it was claimed she was saying. It does seem to me that accusations of racism are so potent in culture wars in the Australian media. It always seems like it's more offensive to call someone racist than to call out racism itself. Some people on the No campaign have written, I'm thinking of Tony Abbott in particular, have written about what their vision of Australia is in the context of the Voice campaign. And that is, as he said in an opinion piece and also in The Australian a few weeks ago, we should feel immense pride in Australia's achievement in becoming the least racist and most colourblind country on earth. 
If that's what you think, then obviously if people are accusing anyone of being racist, that's extremely disturbing because it upsets your picture of what Australia is. I think it's really hard to argue that Australia does not have a deeply racist past and that colonialism is a burden that we have to address and deal with in our current politics. And this question of whether the voters are racist, people don't like to be called racist even when they are. And it's really, you know, it's difficult to make that claim without really shredding on a nerve that is extremely sensitive in Australian politics. But in a way, this argument is at least getting to the heart of the debate. I mean, the idea of voice treaty truth, the whole process is is intended to, over many decades, make peace with the colonial past. And if the no campaign, as Tony Abbott was saying, and as I think in a way Jacinta Price was arguing at the National Press Club, thinks that there isn't a need to make peace with our colonial past, that the legacy of colonialism is not something that is still playing out today, then that is actually right at the heart of what we're talking about here. And sure, bring on that discussion. But I mean, it's sort of coming from the sidelines at the very end of this whole debate. The Guardian's political editor, Catherine Murphy, wrote this week, quote, this referendum is also a health check on Australian democracy. So, Lenore, if that's right, how is Australia's democracy going right now? Look, I think the tactics that we're seeing aren't necessarily new. I mean, fear and negative messaging have been around for a long time. They've been a feature of election campaigns for, well, for as long as I can remember, and sadly that's quite a long time. I've never really seen a scare campaign as effective as this. And I think thinking about it, I think there are a few reasons for that. Um, First, it has all of the elements that would make a traditional scare campaign work. It's got credible front people. I mean, Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine are well-known Indigenous leaders. This campaign could never have worked if it was fronted by non-Indigenous people. Um, I think scares work when they play to an existing bias or belief. Now, I'm not saying note to Australian editorial writers, I'm not saying (laughs) that all Australians are racist, but I do think there has been a rancorous debate about what Indigenous people get and Indigenous privilege or disadvantage for long enough that those arguments landed on, you know, ripe ground. I think that there was enough ever so tenuous links to reality for some of what they're saying. So, you know, there are recordings of Indigenous leaders talking about reparations in vastly different contexts, but you can clip that in a social media clip and put it out and it looks like you're basing your arguments in fact. So first of all, they had they had enough of those elements that make scare campaigns work. Second, in a post-truth world where people are more inclined to do and say things that would have once been unthinkable, then increasingly sort of the old rules of political debate or the old norms of political debate aren't working. And I think they have pushed the norms of debate out further than we've seen before. Third, social media is made for misinformation and scare campaigns. It specialises in taking information out of context and that's how most people are getting information. And fourth, and this was an observation when I was talking to a colleague in the UK, but is a question about how referenda work in a social media age where voters can be so deluged with out-of-context information. Like in a general election, people make decisions on the basis of a whole range of things with a lot of context and backstory about various politicians and 
political parties and what they stand for. So they're voting on multiple issues and for multiple reasons. But in a referendum, there is a binary choice on a single thing. And I think in the age of social media information, I wonder how possible it is to mount a complex argument where there's a binary choice and to counter those sort of simplistic out-of-context arguments in a referendum. So for all of those reasons, it is an indicator that political messaging is getting tougher and it's certainly an indicator that referenda are really difficult. I mean, just one last thing. I don't think the yes case has done a very good job of it, but even if they had, like if you try and run the counterfactual and think what could they have done, it's really hard to think of a campaign that would have worked against what the no campaign is doing. I think in all the elections globally and referendums globally where we've seen these social media play a huge role in conjunction with a certain level of misinformation One of the common factors has been that the really successful campaigns have been ones where they're appealing to a sense of fear in people that things either will change in the future or have changed too far and we need to go back to somewhere. I think that's definitely true of this. It's much easier to make a case against change. But even with the Brexit referendum in Britain where it was a radical proposal that got up, that won, Although it was radical, it was like appealing to people's desire to go back to somewhere where they'd been it before. It doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah that, that, that doesn't exist anymore. But I sort of, we need to we need to reconnect with our past when we were, quotes, independent and separate from Europe and the great British empire or whatever. The, you know, people, However people con- conceived it, it was like a sort of atavistic desire to cling on to something that's from our past. And the, it's like a fear of the future. It's like a fear of change. And I think that a lot of that was also the case in the 2016 Trump election and where people were reacting to change that they didn't like rather than looking forward to a future that they that they did like. Mm. Well, as Lenore said, we're in a post-truth era now. So there's been a lot of self-reflection from the media industry post-Trump, post-Brexit about how we can better stop the spread of misinformation and disinformation in these kinds of campaigns. Do we think that the Australian media has learned anything from those failures? Well, I mean, there's sort of the obvious lessons about how to deal with the post-truth era, which is, you know, call something out when it's false. Don't just repeat it as a he said, she said proposition because, you know, our job is to figure out what is true and what is not and tell our readers that. And I think we certainly did that. We attempted to do that. I think sections of the Australian media did not do that and really acted as an amplification tool for some of the more spurious arguments from the no case. But that said, it is a conundrum. It's not easy because we do have to cover both sides of the debate and people have many reasons for voting no and voters have a right to hear and consider the arguments for voting no And they're not all as a result of misinformation or tenuous link, like some of them are actual reasons why you might not think this is a very good idea. And how you manage to convey all of that while calling out misinformation, it's tricky. I mean, we've had different perspectives from no voters on our Voice AMA podcast. We've certainly had them in our news reporting. But the issue has been how to report on the no case without just blithely repeating the things they've been saying which aren't true and which aren't sort of taken out of context. And it it, it is a much harder task than it might seem sort of at first blush. 
Well, these kinds of tactics are obviously already having an impact on the referendum. But beyond that, Lenore, what are the consequences of these kinds of tactics for Australian democracy and also for Australian politics? Well, I mean, they're not going to go away, right? And the deeply conservative campaigning outfit behind the no case, I think, is quite obviously using this campaign as a template to create a kind of conservative ecosystem, a conservative database of, you know, potential conservative voters to carry on this form of campaigning. It's never going to be as easy in a general election with, you know, compulsory preferential voting. But on an issue-by-issue basis, it is going to be an ongoing feature of our political landscape. I mean, Jacinda Price is already indicating she wants to campaign on pushing back against the transgender movement and, you know, that that's where she'll go next. I do think it's interesting what that means, you know, in the long run for the conservative parties. You know, obviously, first up, if the referendum fails, that's going to, you know, be a bad thing for Anthony Albanese and it's going to put the wind in the sails of Peter Dutton to an extent. But if this does prove to be a sort of a potent way for the very socially conservative, very conservative parts of the Liberal Party. And, you know, the Australian Christian lobby is very heavily involved in this campaigning outfit. If it, it does prove a way for them to really push their causes or their views or a way to kind of pull the coalition parties further to the right, that does raise questions about how you win a general election in the middle ground. But, I mean, I guess that analysis is for a long way down the track. Next, email etiquette and who's in the chairman's lounge. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here. At Guardian Australia, we want to make sure you're getting the news that matters in 2023. Our morning mail and afternoon update newsletters are short and capture the most important headlines of the day. If that sounds good, you can subscribe for free right now by visiting the Guardian homepage, searching Guardian Australia newsletters, or just downloading our app and you'll get daily notifications. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Lenore, what is it for you this week? Oh, I'm very worried about this piece that came in from the UK. It's a, in a section called Past Notes, which is in the form of, you know, uh, people having a conversation with one another about a not particularly sort of important news issue. In this instance, it's a survey by Barclays about how you should start and end 
emails. Mm. And, you know, the headline is you shouldn't end an email with yours sincerely, which is fine. I wouldn't do that anyway. But then it says, what do they write instead? Regards. And the person answers, absolutely not. The same survey dismissed regards as formal and boring, not to mention the fact that it makes the writer sound like a cold, hate-filled psychopath. Um <laughs> This is quite confronting for me, so I'll just leave it right there. Okay. So I've had this uh, come up, but in context of very occasionally having to write to people in German, my German is really scratchy. But in German, the normal way of starting a letter is to like to say, "Dear somebody." The literal translation is something like, "Extremely honoured, sir, madam." Mm. Mm. <laughs> and this obviously sounds ext- very archaic to an English speaker, but I've asked native speakers whether you still start a relatively casual email to someone in German by using that formulation, and they say, yes, absolutely, it's really rude not to. Wow. <laughs> so maybe we should adopt their very, very formal rules. Okay, all my emails are now going to say, very honoured, Mike <laughs> T-shirt. Just keep it simple. Everyone's very honoured, that's the thing. Um, and Mike, what is it for you today? It's hard, been hard to find fun stories this week, but the one I did like was about the revelations both from us and the ABC about who become a member of Qantas's chairman's lounge. Uh, not me, you Mike. <laughs> I have not been asked no. to join Qantas's chairman's lounge, but it turned out that people from the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, in fact, five of the seven commissioners of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, including its chair, are members of the lounge and people from the Australian Securities and Investments Commission <laughs> and people from the um, airline regulator, you know, so airline safety regulator. <laughs> yeah, none of which had been declared before. Had they not been required to be declared, but you'd think maybe someone might have mentioned it at some point. Anyway, it's good that this is coming out into the open amid many other stories about Qantas, although that is not the worst thing they've done. It does kind of speak to their soft power influences in Australian <laughs> regulatory circles. It's getting worse and worse. Okay, thanks so much for your time, Lenore. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot, Jane. If anything in today's discussion has affected you, there is help available. You can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. And for support and counselling specifically for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, help is available at 13 YARN. That's 13 9276. If you want to hear more about The Voice, you can find The Voice Ask Me Anything podcast in the full story feed. This week, our episode featured interviews with Liberal Senator Karen Little and Yes campaigner Tanya Hosh. Remember, you can send any questions about The Voice that you'd like answered on the show to voicequestions at theguardian.com. That's it for today. To make sure you get all of our new episodes when they land, please subscribe to Full Story wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also leave us a review to help us find new listeners. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert, sound design and mixing by James Milsom. Our executive producer was Hannah Parks. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.